Hello, you're listening to Exocast, the podcast that takes you far beyond our solar system to explore distant extrasolar worlds. As always, we have an exciting show for you this month. Hugh is going to start off by telling us a little bit about binary stars. Uh, Hannah is going to discuss brown dwarfs, and I'm going to cover all the month's exoplanetary news. But first off, let's meet our exocasters. So Hugh Osborne hunts for transiting exoplanets from the University of Warwick in the UK. Hannah Wakeford studies the clouds and atmospheres of exoplanets from NASA Goddard in Washington, D.C. And introducing the show was Andrew Rushby, who studies planetary habitability and the early climate of the Earth at NASA Ames in California. Now, kicking us off uh, today is Hugh, who's going to tell us all about how planets around double stars are twice as interesting. Is that is that right, Hugh? Well, they're, they're certainly interesting. I, I don't know if they're two times more interesting than, than, than single stars, but I'll uh, try and convince you of that anyway. Um so, so yeah, so a binary star is effectively a, a, st- a star system with two stars in it. And in fact, um, there are, binaries are kind of the most simple multiple star systems we know. They go up to, you know, triples and quadruples and all the way to, I'm, I'm not sure, like clusters, I guess, are, are, are multiple star systems in their own right. But um, they're pretty common. So as I kind of mentioned last month, um, about 45% of all star systems are multiple. And this means that if you basically pick a, solar type star at random it's more likely to be in a binary system because even though they're, they're only 45 percent of systems they're something like 70 percent of all the stars because there's twice as many stars in a binary system it's a com- it's confusing basically they're common um and we expect these have planets and in fact they should have um, a few sort of types of planets around them there's the so-called s type planets and these are kind of uh, just um planets that orbit a single star in the binary system, just like the the planets we're used to discussing on, on this show. So, um, so they orbit one of the stars, or sometimes both of the stars in the system. So, for example, HD one three three one three one A and B. So the two stars in that system both have planets on S-type orbits around each of the stars, which is quite cool. And then there's the P-type systems, which are circumbinary orbits so these are the planets that go around not just one of the stars in the system but they go around both of them or in, indeed the the center of mass of both of those stars is, is is what the planet actually orbits and i guess there there sometimes it's asked whether you can have a third type which is a figure of eight orbits that goes around both of them but kind of goes around in a figure of eight shape and and maybe theoretically there's a way to make that possible but in in practical senses that's sort of an, an unstable orbit so so we we only have the two types of uh, sort of binary star planets uh, categories so how do we find them so when it comes to the single types the s types we just do how we normally do uh, often the binaries that we're looking at have large separations between them and they look like single stars so we you know use transits use radial velocities to try and look at the, the pull and push and pull of the, the planet on the system uh, or imaging. And for example, the now debunked Alpha Sen BB was another example of a planet in a wide binary system. Um, so the circumbinaries are slightly more interesting and they have a, this, this extra way we can search for planets around them, which is by using, uh, basically using the timing of the two stars in the middle. So when we're lucky, the, the that internal binary star pair has some 
time-varying physics that we can precisely measure. So this is usually the eclipses of one of the stars in front of the other one, but it can also be the pul pulsations from one of the stars, or even the pulses of if one of them is a pulsar, so sending out this beam of, of like highly ionized material and, and x-rays and, and op optical and rad radio waves and all of this uh, electromagnetic spectrum. We can, we can measure that precisely. And if uh, all of these happen with perfect regularity, so there's a bit like a ticking clock in the middle of this, um, this little solar system with two stars. But imagine that that's, um, the clock is, is basically moving on an orbit through space. As it moves away, the distance the light has to travel from, from the clock to us increases and its ticks appear to slow down. And then as it moves towards us, on the opposite side of the orbit, its ticks speed up again as it's moving, as the light that's being emitted is kind of the distance between us is, is, is shortening. So how much it speeds up and how long it takes to start that cycle again basically tell us how big the planet is that's going around it because the planet is what's pulling the central binary system around on an extra sort of orbit and also how massive the planet is and how long the year is sorry um, so this is something we can do to measure um, in either eclipsing binaries where we look at the uh, basically the the eclipses of one star in front of the other or in pulsar binaries so in fact this was how the first circumbinary planet was found which was around a pulsar white dwarf pair and the pulses of one was seen to peri come periodi periodically earlier and then later than expected. And we, we know that, that now that that's because there's a planet around the, this, this binary system. And you can also use the standard methods such as radial velocity and transits to look at these two uh, binaries to try and find planets that go around both of them. And this is a little bit more tricky because you kind of have to remove the signal from the binary stars in the middle to make sure that you're looking for only the planetary effect. Um, so when it comes to radial velocities, there haven't actually been any detections of circumbinary planets directly with RVs yet, although I have seen some interesting candidates coming out of the Swiss telescope, so that might change in, in the future. Um, transits are a bit more successful, uh, mostly with Kepler, so we're now on 12 planets detected around circumbinary, or circumbinary planets, sorry, detected. Um, and these have all been looking so far around eclipsing binaries, where we know we're more likely to be looking effectively along the plane of this extrasolar system. So we're looking edge on, and that's where we think the planets are orbiting, and that is indeed where we've been finding planets. Um, but actually, the uh, the tidal forces from the stars that are orbiting each other would make any planets in this sort of system process around its star, which effectively means that um, any circumbinary planet will transit at some point, but also that those transits might come and go. They might It might transit for a year, and then... As, it, as its orbit processes away from our line of sight, it, we might have to wait thousands more years before it comes back around and transits again. Um, and direct imaging is another successful avenue. So we've got two planets now from, from looking at sort of, quite a, sort of close in binaries and trying to find planets around them just by looking for the direct light coming from planets that are kind of far away. Because they're so far from the binary system in the center, actually, it's unlikely that they'll, um, they'll be, the, the planets will, will be affected much by the two plant two stars in the center and in fact some results have shown that there's just as many planets around binary stars like this as there are around single stars so that kind of backs that up um so another interesting bit of science is that we now know something about how many planets there are around these circumbinary planets there are so um a paper i actually worked on a few years ago we looked at the number of these kepler systems and basically found that 
there's slightly higher occurrence rates for circumbinary planets than there are from even the single star planets. Um, with something like 10% of uh, eclipsing binaries hosting a giant planet on orbits of less than a year. And we also sort of found another weird effect that had been seen before, and that's that short period binaries, so on, on binaries that have a period of only a few days, which are much more common than longer period binaries, they don't host any planets at all. So this is maybe something weird going on in formation. It's not really quite understood yet, but this is another weird effect. And another maybe less surprising finding is that planets only exist on very wide orbits around binaries. So they tend to have periods some, somewhere between three and six times that of the binary period, or orbital distances more than two times the distance between the two stars. And this kind of makes perfect sense because there is a, this critical radius where if the planets are too close to these two orbiting stars, then their orbits chaotically decay or the, the planet gets thrown out of the system or it gets colliding with one of the stars. And so if there was any planet closer in than that, then we it wouldn't last very long. Um, another interesting insight in planets around binary stars is sort of what the climate might be like, whether these, these things would be habitable. And um, one of the interesting things that I alluded to last month was that the sunlight and actually the wavelength of that light would change on every single orbit the planet takes because it's moving closer to and further from each of the stars in the system. And those might be, or they tend to be, different sizes, different uh, temperatures. They put out different um, amounts of light as well as different wavelengths of light. So on an Earth-like planet in, a, in the habitable zone of a circumbinary sort of system, this would lead to varying temperatures and precipitation and wind patterns on the planet over the, the course of one orbit. So it's a bit like a seasonal effect, but it happens across the entire planet as, as the light changes. And we don't really know whether this would increase the potential habitability of these planets as maybe life thrives in the changing environments, or it might decrease it by taking the planet periodically into and out of the habitable zone each orbit. Um, and that is if the planet can exist in the habitable zone at all. So um, both the S-type and the circumbinary type planets have not just a region where liquid water might be stable, but also a region where the planet's orbits might be unstable. And these two regions can actually overlap. So we know for Alpha Sen AB, so the nearest sun-like stars to the, the sun, and also the nearest binary, that planets in the habitable zone around either of them could exist, could uh, would be stable, as the two stars only pass about 11 AU apart. But if they passed on their closest approach much significantly closer, then any habitable planets too far out from those individual stars would become chaotic, they would become unstable, and any planets would, would no longer be able to exist there. Um, and similarly for the circumbinary systems, um, the habitability and stability can either overlap or not. So I talked about or adopted Kepler-47c last week, which is in the habitable zone of a circumbinary system. However, if the binary in the centre was any wider, it's uh, the or orbit of those two stars around each other was sort of longer or more distant, then any planets in the habitable zone would be flung out and would no longer be able to exist. So it's quite an interesting dynamic uh, sort of environment around circumbinaries and, and also around planets in binary stars. Um, so I hope I've convinced you that they're maybe not as interesting as single stars, or hopefully, maybe, yeah, I'd say they're, I'd say they're more interesting than, than single stars. There's certainly more going on and more, more things you have to be aware of. So, um, so yeah, so that's, that's planets in binary star systems. So Hugh, is there often a 
a large disparity between the sizes of the stars, the binary stars? Is one usually bigger than the other? Are they normally close to the same size? Do you have any stats on that? I think in most systems they're uh, reasonably close in size. Certainly for the ones that we know of planets around, they kind of the ratio between the sizes of the stars tends to vary from about um, one to three times. So, I mean, one star being three times larger than the other, I guess that is quite a significant difference, right? That's a that's a big sort of sun-like star and a tiny like uh, M dwarf. So, um, so yeah, it can vary quite a lot. It's interesting because uh, a number of the planets that I've looked at are in binary systems um they're not circumbinary planets like some of the ones that you talked about so i didn't realize there were 12 circumbinary systems uh, i think that, there's uh, 20 now actually aren't it? 20 that's even better uh, are any of these in systems that have planets where we would likely be able to characterize their atmospheres i don't think so so some of the directly imaged so there's two directly imaged circumbinaries those obviously we can characterize because we can see the light from their atmospheres directly um but most of the what the ones that kepler have found around very faint stars so we can't do what you like to do and, and look during transit to try and find uh light passing through the atmospheres of those planets which is a shame I'm just wondering if uh, we would expect there to be significant differences between a, the atmospheres of a circumbinary planet compared to uh, a planet which just goes around one star. Yeah, I'm not sure. Certainly it would be interesting to look at because in some cases um, the planet can transit both the larger star and also the smaller star. So you can get um, transmission spectroscopy of the same planet from crossing both stars and if there's any differences in that it might tell you something about the method that we use in transmission spectroscopy and whether uh, just how how you know how it might change given what star you're looking at yeah it's certainly an interesting question yeah you can imagine the atmospheres of those those planets one orbiting um perhaps a red dwarf and a g-type star being blasted with you know uv and xuv and flares from the red dwarf and then also getting loads of you know visible stuff from the uh, from the G dwarf so a very interesting radiative environment I'd imagine lots going on yeah I read something interesting that said that um, actually the magnetic activity so the the solar storms that come off M like stars they're kind of suppressed by being in a binary star system I'm not sure how that works but it might mean actually that planets around circumbinaries would be less exposed to these like x-rays and, and flares and things that might might otherwise kill life on a single star system so yeah maybe the magnetic field lines interacting with the larger the larger stars magnetic field you know funneling those high high energy particles back into the center of mass or something but yeah sounds interesting yeah i mean it's a question then of the dominant magnetic field and it's the same question we kind of ask for these hot jupiters by stars the hot jupiter will be dominated by the stellar magnetic field so it's a question of then how the energy is funneled and if you've got a much smaller star if the magnetic field's much weaker then it would it would it would be in the same situation it would be dominated by the larger star so it could very much affect that environment it's fascinating there's so many options so many options i don't think we probably be able to cover them all unfortunately on this episode um so something else that we've discussed relatively frequently on Exocast are brown dwarfs. They've come up several times in previous episodes. But what are they and why are they important for exoplanets? Well, next up, Hannah is hopefully going to provide an answer to that question. That is a good question. And I'm going to explain a little bit about the history of brown dwarfs, what they are and why we should care about them. 
So brown dwarfs themselves are the intermediary stage between a planetary mass object and a stellar mass object. So this can be anywhere between 13 or 15 times the mass of Jupiter, which is itself 340 times the mass of the Earth, just to give you a really awkward scale to go by, um, all the way up to 80 times the mass of Jupiter. So it's a big range, and we say it in planetary mass scale, which is interesting in and of itself, because actually they are more like failed stars than planetary bodies. So there's a small debate as to whether we should define a brown dwarf by their formation process or by the, the mass of the brown dwarf itself. Now, what a brown dwarf is, is a uh, massive object which has the inability to fuse hydrogen. So it's not a star, because that's the definition of the boundary where you create a star, you're fusing hydrogen in the core, which makes them shine. That is a star. Brown dwarfs are unable to do that. They don't have enough mass. Now, in a brown dwarf, when they're young, um, we expect that they should be able to fuse different elements in their core, like deuterium, which is a heavier version of hydrogen, um, or even burning lithium in their core if, uh, for some of the youngest brown dwarfs. But uh, it's really this boundary which gives them this definition. They are not stars, but they are too big to be planets because they have at some point in their past done some kind of fusion process in their core. Now that's really complicated and a fuzzy boundary um, and that's why there's so much debate around what these objects actually are. Are they planets or are they failed stars? Now there are a few different types of brown dwarfs uh, and they're classified in similar ways to stars and that's by their colour. Now if you've ever seen the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram of, the, of stellar classification you'll see a nice wiggly line cutting down the centre called the main sequence and then offshooting from that a number of different branches of different stellar classifications. And these are all done by their colour colour map, so how they would look in one colour, say the red, compared to the blue. And that really defines where they are on this main sequence of stars. Now, if you go all the way down to the end of that little squiggly line, which cuts through the center of this color color space, you'd reach the M stars. Now, these M stars are the smallest and coldest uh, types of stars that can exist. And offshooting from the end of that is where the brown dwarfs will come in. Now, the reason why they're called brown dwarfs is actually interesting. It's, it was actually uh, Jill Tartar, who is the head of the SETI Institute, who came up with the term brown dwarf. And that was only in 1975. And it's to refer to this approximate color that these objects might have. Brown instead of red, like the, their hotter or larger stellar companions. And it wasn't until 1988 that the first one was discovered, so they'd been theorised just like exoplanets for many, many decades, but it wasn't until very recent history that a brown dwarf was actually observed. So not only do they link with exoplanets in that they are the intermediary between planets and stars, but also they have the same discovery kind of era. They're growing up in the same kind of field. They're growing up in the same timeline. And that makes it really, really interesting to do a comparison between the two fields. Now, generally, um, 
if we take brown dwarfs, we can split them up into three categories. So like we have lots of categories for stars, we have G-type stars like our sun, we've got um, F-type stars which are slightly hotter, and then K-type stars, and then down to M-type stars. Brown dwarfs have three different types, and these go from the coldest and the smallest, Y dwarfs, through to the intermediary uh, T dwarfs, and then up to the most massive and hottest L dwarfs. Now, at the top of the sequence is where they meet these M stars. So there is an overlap in terms of the color that you measure for these L dwarfs. That's very similar to these M stars. So it can get a little bit confusing. Now, in the L dwarfs, they're more red. So they would, uh, in their J minus K color, compared to the bluer T dwarfs. So that means that they are brighter they appear brighter in the K band, which is around two and a half microns, um, compared to the J band, which is close to the optical at 1.2 microns. So that's how we measure the color of these objects. So uh, to be honest, I have trouble with this and I'm an actual, I'm an observer, so <laughs> it's interesting. Now the redder color for the, um, for the L dwarfs is actually counterintuitive to what you would expect for the Planck function. Um, where we would expect colder objects to be redder. Now, this is because um, of their atmospheres and how complex they are. Now, as we get to the massive and colder objects, so below the st stellar sequence, you start to produce condensates and clouds, as I have talked about in other exocasts. These clouds uh, can form anywhere between around 1400 Kelvin and 2000 Kelvin, so right in this L dwarf regime. And in these atmospheres, if you have these types of clouds, they cause a red shift in the color. These are, these are similar composition to what we see in exoplanet giant uh, atmospheres, uh, like I've talked about before. So at these temperatures, we're thinking of silicates, which is like our sand here on Earth, which is the forsterites and the enstatites. We're also talking at the much hotter end, these corundums and these perovskites, which are the aluminium and titanium based cloud species. So it's in fact these clouds which are getting in the way that uh, are causing this red color, counterintuitive to the sequence that we would expect. Now, as we go to colder, these T dwarfs, these clouds can form much deeper in the atmosphere. So where it's much hotter is much deeper in the atmosphere of a brown dwarf. And that actually pushes these clouds, which are very red, below the photosphere, so below the visible range that we're getting these uh, colors from these uh, brown dwarfs. So that means that they end up then looking bluer than their hotter counterparts. So you get a kink in this sequence that you would see if you plotted them on this traditional Hertzsprung-Russell diagram. This, uh, this is like a big part of the brown dwarf observation debate. Why and what is this kink? Do all L dwarfs have these clouds? Do all T dwarfs become um, clearer at the photospheric level that we're seeing. So this is called the L to T transition. There are a number of different uh, brown dwarfs which have been observed over this transition, but um, the numbers are still very, very small, and we're still learning a lot more about how to classify brown dwarfs. 
And in this classification scheme, uh, it wasn't until very, very late, so very recently, that uh, a new classification was needed, the Y-dwarfs. And this is when we get down to much colder temperatures and really strange temperatures. We're talking about 15 to 80 Jupiter mass objects, huge objects about the size of Jupiter in radius, but very massive, that could be as cold as the human body. That's a very strange thing to think about if you if we're making the comparison that these are failed stars. So brown dwarfs uh, have a huge classification scheme um, from temperatures which you know range from uh, around us, you know, in in the the low um, tens in Celsius, all the way up to our two thousand. Um, and sometimes as hot as 3,000 degrees. So it's a humongous range uh, of masses and of temperatures. So it really, it does beg the question of, can we learn something about how these uh, objects formed that can tell us a little bit more about what we would expect and how many there might be out there? So in a sense, um, these Brown dwarfs and exoplanets, like I said, have grown up together. Um, they were discovered around the same time. They've been theorized for a long time. Um, and they sit in an interesting mass range. So the largest exoplanets are, are just as hot as some of these uh, brown dwarfs. And they range down to the coldest ones. So we have this range where Jupiter is the same radius as a brown dwarf and could be as cold as a white dwarf. Um, and we have these uh, hot Jupiter exoplanets, which are, again, the same size in radius as a brown dwarf, much, much uh, lower mass, so lower gravity regime, but at the same temperature as the hottest L dwarfs. So it's um, really good comparative studies can be done between these different objects. Now, the problem is, um, because they are not orbiting a star, uh, there are some which are orbiting stars, but most brown dwarfs are, sit on their own. So we have to detect them through direct imaging. So direct detection of the light that is coming from the brown dwarf. And like I said, these aren't stars. They're not emitting their own light, which is why we see them in the infrared, because they are emitting heat. So we're seeing the heat from these brown dwarfs. And because some of them are so cool, so cold, uh, as temperatures like us, that means that they don't emit much light. And if they do, it's very, very red. So that's much harder for us to detect. So um, a lot of them have been found and a lot of them have been studied, but most of them are within a hundred light years of the earth because they're so hard to actually make that detection. So there could be so many other brown dwarfs out there that we will never be able to image. So it really is a close by kind of study. But one of the good things about these brown dwarfs, um, even though they're hard to detect, is that when we do detect them, because we're getting direct images of them, we can also get direct spectra of them straight from the object itself. And we can get those at high resolution. Now, this gives us access to the compositional information of their atmospheres. It gives us information as to the dynamics of their atmospheres. In fact, some brown dwarfs have measured variability. 
This is essentially the equivalent of weather patterns that are being seen on these objects. And I talked before about how some of them have clouds in their atmospheres. If we're able to measure the rotation rate of these brown dwarfs, some of them have rotation rates which are well below two hours, but they can go all the way up to days or weeks in terms of how quickly they rotate. We can detect these variations in the emitted spectra, which tell us a little bit about different parts of the atmosphere we're observing at that point in time. So you can detect this rotation rate, but you can also detect cloud patterns as they move uh, around the brown dwarf itself. So the fact that we can detect the light straight from them, even though it's really hard to do, means we get so much information all at once. And that's really perfect for trying to understand what different compositions we might expect for these temperatures. And that's what brings us back to exoplanet connection as well. These are high mass objects at same temperatures to exoplanets, which are low mass objects. So we can look at the gravitational dependence of different things in atmospheres and how the gravity of an object is going to impact the atmospheric composition and dynamics. Now, of course, we do come into the problem that exoplanets uh, are inherently um, orbiting another object that is causing the upper atmosphere likely to heat up because they have external radiation impacting them, whereas brown dwarfs do not have that. So there are differences that become a little bit difficult to work out. But what I really like and what I'm really interested in learning more about in the, in the coming decades, hopefully, are irradiated brown dwarfs. So brown dwarfs that actually orbit stars because there are some, uh, these very massive objects that orbit their, uh, a host star that is very similar to these giant exoplanets we're studying. So can we actually learn by observing these different very high mass objects in the same way uh, or similar ways to exoplanets? Can we learn about this connection between how gravity really impacts the atmospheric characteristics of a planet? Additionally, because we have this huge span of temperatures, but all with relatively similar gravities because of their mass, we can look at how temperature, not gravity, is then impacting a atmosphere. And this really comes into this L to T transition. This is what we're seeing. We're seeing this temperature impact on similar gravitational objects. And that can help us learn a little bit about these giant planets. And if we put them at different distances from the star, we can learn about their temperature profile. And then we can disentangle how the stellar irradiation from an exoplanet compared to a brown dwarf is additionally impacting that composition of the atmosphere. So there's a huge connection by what we can learn about atmospheres from brown dwarfs to exoplanets, which is why we're talking about them here, and which is why uh, every now and again, you'll hear us uh, randomly say the word brown dwarfs. Um, and it doesn't make much sense if you don't know the background and don't know what a brown dwarf is. It is either a failed star, <laughs> where it didn't get enough mass to start burning hydrogen at its core, or it is a giant planet, and that depends on how it formed. If it collapsed under gravity from a cloud, and there just wasn't enough mass for it to ignite and become a star, then that's very, very similar to how we would expect M stars uh, and stars like the Sun to have formed. However, if it formed in orbit uh, around another object and then possibly either got flung out from that uh, object, then that's formed more like a planet. Uh, and that can really inform us about 
the way different things actually form in a galaxy. Um, and if there's a dependence on where in a galaxy something forms, if there's a dependence on the metallicity, if we see a brown dwarf which has a very, very high metallicity compared to a low metallicity, that tells us a little about, bit about not, when, not only when it formed, because we would expect much lower metallicity brown dwarfs to have formed much earlier in the evolution of our entire universe, but also where it might have formed. If it's a higher metallicity, you might expect that it formed around a star where the star had taken up all of the, the low metallicity material. So there's a huge number of things that are left to learn. Um, and they're still very young, only a couple of decades old, just like exoplanets. So there's many more things that we can learn. Uh, so I think it's really important that we cover brown dwarfs a little bit every now and again because they really do bridge the gap between the stars and the planets um, and everything that we do here with exoplanets is based on our stars and their, their planets uh, that are being hosted. So we can get some valuable insights from both and maybe feedback between these different communities. Fascinating overview, Hannah. Um, I was just wondering, um, the residual heat seems to be pretty, sorry, the heat seems to be pretty important. Um, is that... Is the heat still being generated or is it just residual? I mean, it might be a super obvious question, um, but I mean, is there any processes going on in the in the cores, in the interiors of these uh, objects that are still producing that heat or are we going to expect it to eventually drop off over astronomical time? We would expect it to drop off over time, yes. Uh, so the much younger brown dwarfs will be much hotter. And it's the same thing we see for these uh, directly imaged exoplanets. So directly imaged exoplanets are often incredibly young. That's because they're still emitting heat via their gravitational collapse. So if something's collapsing, it's it's getting rid of that collapsing energy by emitting it as heat. We see the same thing with brown dwarfs. Uh, of course, brown dwarfs, if they when early in their lifetime uh, when they were able to burn the lithium in their core we expect that to happen pretty quickly it happens very very quickly in m stars um, and you can determine the ages of m stars by whether or not they still have lithium in them um, and, and other stars so for brown dwarfs we would expect to see that disappear over time um, now there is some difficult trends with age and age is a really tough one to work out for brown dwarfs because uh, of the uncertainty in how quickly they should have burnt their material um, and how how long they should have material to produce uh, this heat rather than just the gravitational collapsing energy. So there are a number of different processes that can generate this heat, but most of it will dissipate over time. So you mentioned how exoplanets and brown dwarfs are kind of growing up together. Um, how many pl how many brown dwarfs are there? Remind me. Uh, I'm not sure. Do we know? I'm sure we do. There's a database I think, somewhere. I know that there's a couple of people on Twitter who will definitely know that number, like off the top of their head. Yeah, I, th I think uh, planets are winning anyway. That's what I was. Saying. I think planets yeah. are winning. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Planets are planets are winning in terms of number. Um, certainly but in terms of inherent information about them planets are not True. winning still yeah um quantity over quality was, yeah <laughs> yes welcome to the kepler mission um i think it's somewhere in the range of three to five hundred okay i don't think it's that many but i am really happy to be corrected on that one 
uh, that doesn't tell me how. I'm just Googling how many brown dwarfs are there? <laughs> Apparently, there can be up to around 70 billion brown dwarfs in a galaxy's disk. Now, that doesn't tell me how many that have been detected. That tells you what they think the occurrence rate of brown dwarfs is, which is a completely different question. And there's another study that I'm looking at here, which says that there are roughly six stars for every brown dwarf. Oh, Wikipedia says 1,800. 1,800. List of brown dwarfs. more than I got a list of brown dwarfs. No. As of 2015, more than 2,800 brown dwarfs have been identified. Ooh. Okay, it's, it, the numbers are tighter than I thought then. Hmm. Yeah, that's a pretty good good series of numbers. Honestly, I the the studies of brown dwarfs that I've looked at are very much atmospheric ca- classification studies, as is my bias. Um, and those color-color diagrams very often are, are not well populated. So... Um, it would be good to see a fully populated colour-colour uh, diagram for brown dwarfs. And I'm wondering if somebody like Jackie Faraday has one of those kinds of studies. Um, but there's so many so many amazing uh, exoplanet astronomers, also brown dwarf astronomers. So um, Christiana Helling does a lot of cloud studies for brown dwarfs. Um, a lot of the work that Isabel Braff and Mark Marley and... Um, Sarah Casewell and, and loads of different people working on brown dwarfs that also do brown dwarf uh, exoplanet atmospheres. So there really is a very strong crossover between the two communities. Um, and certainly in the, in the direct imaging community where it's similar techniques that need to be used to tr- try and understand and disentangle the spectra of these kinds of objects. So there's certainly a, a great crossover um, and communication between the two communities, which is why I think... Um, it's definitely the way to go in terms of connections between our understanding of the base physics in an atmosphere. Yeah, that was really interesting, Hannah. Um, right, so now we're on to the news section of our monthly Exocast. And this month, it's Andrew taking the news desk. So what's been going on? It's been a good month. It's been a good month, guys. Uh, so I'm going to start off with the discovery, which I'm sure you're both aware of, of a temperate super-Earth called LHS-1140b. Uh, this was announced in an April 20th article in Nature, which is actually the day of recording, so it's hot off the presses. However, us in the know, we may have already spotted it on the archive um, and had a look through this paper. It's really good, really cool. So it's um, discovered by the MIRTH project, or the MIRTH project, uh, which is a transiting exoplanet detection survey that focuses on red dwarfs specifically, uh, and it's based over at the Whipple Observatory in Arizona. So this planet is is pretty cool, 1140b, it has a radius of 1.4 Earth radii and a mass of about 6.5 Earths as measured by a separate high accuracy radial velocity study. So keep that in mind, um, but we do, but perhaps do recall the difficulty and uncertainties involved in, in this relationship that we have discussed before on Exocast. So bearing that in mind, this estimate still provides a, a density consistent with rocky ex, uh, exoplanets, um, but it's still about twice as dense as the Earth, so not quite Earth-like in that respect. Um, 
its host star is also pretty small, uh, about 15% the mass of the sun. It's about 12 parsecs out, so within 40 light years. Um, so even though this planet orbits at only 0.09 astronomical units or, you know, really close within 10% of the distance between the Earth and the Sun in our system, it receives about 43% of the light, which is about the same as what hit Mar hit hits the top of uh, Mars's atmosphere at the moment. So uh, this places it within the habitable zone and obviously gives it all the baggage and assumptions that come with that statement. So unlike TRAPPIST-1, which is very quickly emerging as the post-child system, poster system uh, for habitable planets around small stars, LHS-1140 doesn't seem to be very active, which is a, a good sign. Uh, no flares were detected during the survey, so despite the fact that small stars like this tend to be pretty tempestuous, throwing out flares left, right and centre, this, uh, this bodes well for the atmosphere. It's um, less likely to have been stripped away by those particles. Um, and set it aside, I think, as a really fascinating planet about which we're going to hear probably quite a little bit more in the future. So while I mentioned TRAPPIST there, uh, another paper came out on the TRAPPIST system recently uh, in the Astrophysical Journal Letters. Uh, it took a powerful GCM, so a global circulation model, uh, and applied it to the TRAPPIST system to find to figure out which one of the planets was more, most likely to be habitable. It found that the planet E, which was already uh, one of the planets identified in the habitable zone, represents probably the best chance of a habitable ocean-covered planet. So the author Eric Wolf, who's over at the University of Colorado, even managed to compute the potential habitable surface area of the planet, but it's not very clear from the paper how they reached that fraction. I'd be interested to, to get a hold of that code. Um, personally, I think this sounds like a little bit of a leap, considering that even making that estimate for the Earth is pretty, is pretty contentious, and we know a lot more about the Earth's habitable environments. So anyway, as with any habitability studies, there's going to be a lot of assumptions included, and we have to look at the initial conditions and assumptions of the model, um, which I won't go into a huge amount of detail, but they've done the best they can with the observations we have, which is pretty much what you can say about any habitability study at this stage. So the bottom line is that this planet still needs a lot of CO2, up to about 1.3 bars for a, a pure CO2 atmosphere to keep things toasty. Um, so the interactions between the ocean and the land, if there is any, and the atmosphere will be very important because of how carbon and specifically carbon dioxide is kind of cycled around the, the planet system. So it uses a very simple ocean setup and it's not kind of clear how the carbon cycle is going to be represented. But it's a good, a good first step and this is a, a model that's been used for other slowly rotating planets too. So um, we mentioned, or Hannah mentioned earlier, the, uh, the concept of occurrence rates, which is something that exoplanet scientists are super into these days uh, in the field of kind of astrostatistics, I guess. And arguably Kepler, Kepler's prime mission is figuring out occurrence rates for, uh, for exoplanets, i.e. given a star of a given mass, how many planets might we expect to find um, in its orbit? So a really cool paper came out um, recently that basically found a really significant gap in the occurrence rates of planets between super-Earths and mini-Neptunes. So about 9.5% of stars host 1.5 Earth radii planets, 12% of stars host 2.5 Earth radii planets, but only 2% are in, that, are in this intermediary reg regime of about 1.8 Earth radii. 
So there's this bifurcation in the population, which intuitively I think made sense. You'd think that the larger the planet, there's going to be a point at which suddenly it just accretes loads of volatiles onto its surface and below which it will stay as a, as a rocky as a rocky planet. And that transition is probably going to be pretty, um, pretty rapid. So you're not going to really have that many planets in that intermediary zone where they're just accreting a little bit of volatiles, I guess. But still, an interesting, an interesting study, and I think um, certainly helping us to nail down some of the uncertainties and complexities in the mass-radius relationship. Um, so what else have we got going on in the news? A pretty cool citizen science project, actually. Uh, it's developing out of analysing Corot-like curves in EVE Online, which is a massive multiplayer science fiction game. Um, so this is spearheaded by a Swiss startup called Massive, Massively Multiplayer Online Science that aims to leverage you know, games like this, um, like EVE, to advance citizen science projects. And EVE has done this before. They hosted another citizen science project last year to look for protein patterns in high-resolution images of human cells. So a little bit outside of our field here on Exocast, but still pretty cool. So players are going to be tasked with looking for transiting exoplanets from the archives of the Corot mission, which was a, uh, a French-European space observatory, which ended back in 2013. Um, and in return for that, they're going to get some in-game cash. So Michael Mayor, who along with Didier Queloz, uh, discovered the first exoplanet 51 Peg B back in 95, is involved in this project, and he set up some false positive criteria to make sure that folks weren't taking advantage of this opportunity to earn digital moolah by spamming out fake planets. So I think this is pretty great because it represents, one, just how interested people are in exoplanet science. You know, it's definitely right up there in the public consciousness now. Um, two, it represents the capabilities of citizen science to get involved in active investigations and find actual real planets. And three, how much data there is really to be analysed. So this mission, the Caro mission, ran for seven years and it's got massive archive with still plenty of work to be done with this data. So exoplanet missions like Kepler and K2 will have extraordinary amounts uh, in their archives that will also need attention, but we just don't often have the human power to do so. So when you can casually log on to EVE and discover a new planet in an evening, who can really say that gaming is pointless, Hey, eh? Not anymore, not in 2017. And finally, another story that's breaking as we record this month's episode is the fact that exoplanet hunters Natalie Battaglia, Guillem Anglada Esquide and Michelle Guillon are named in this year's Time magazine 100 Most Influential People. So Natalie is the Kepler Mission Science Officer. Uh, Guillem led the search for the Proxima system and Michelle led the discovery of the TRAPPIST-1 system, so things that we've covered extensively in Exocast in the past. Uh, I think again this goes to show just how much exoplanet discovery and science around it has impacted public consciousness and fundamentally how we see the planets, the universe, our place in it. Um, and I think uh, to illustrate this I'm just going to repeat a tweet that Natalie sent out earlier. She says, my hope is to look back one day on our search for life and see it helped ensure a sustainable future for the human species right here at home. So I will just add the small disclaimer is that Natalie is my advisor here at Ames and a wonderful and inspirational one she is at that. Um, I do wonder now uh, if this makes me a little bit more influential just by proximity, right? An association. So either way, either way, I'm grateful to have her in my corner. 
so that's the news for the month. Uh, it was, as I said, a good one. Um, coming up in the last week of April uh, is the biannual NASA Astrobiology Science Conference in Arizona, which is the biggest meeting of its sort in the world. Uh, so there's undoubtedly going to be announcements and discoveries coming out from that. I'll be there. I'll report on a few of those next time. But keep your eyes and ears peeled. But one last comment I did want to raise, though, and it's come up just a few times on Exocast in the past, but it's time, I think, that we addressed it head on. EXO, EXO, the South Korean slash Chinese boy band that has completely unreasonably <laughs> taken the monopoly on the EXO prefix, <laughs> which is making searches involving this term somewhat biased towards their brand of catchy K-pop. So... Well, I'm sure they're all a nice bunch of lads. There are 12 of them in total, apparently. And they peddle their musical wares in Mandarin and Korean. So, you know, getting a good audience share. I would like to be the first, hopefully, to officially come out as denouncing their control and possession of the EXO prefix. Uh, hashtag down with EXO. Okay, I'll step off my soapbox now and throw it back over to Hannah, who has the unenviable task of choosing just one more planet to add to our adopted exoplanetary family. So, Hannah, which one have you chosen? Uh, well, I have been very stereotypical. We all seem to have our own little niches, and I thought, why wander away from what I know? So I have picked a lovely hot Jupiter called WASP-12b for our Exocast family. Now, the reason why I picked that this week is because it kind of fits in with the two topics that we've already discussed. It is a incredibly large planet, so it's uh, nearly two times the size of Jupiter, still a planet uh it's very very hot so it's around 2500 kelvin so it's a, it's around the hot, highest temperature that you would get for the l type type uh, brown dwarfs but it is also in a binary system it orbits around one single star but that star uh, is also host to a very far separated uh, m dwarf binary so in fact it's a triple star system so the planet WASP-12b orbits incredibly close uh, to its star uh, and distant from that is two little M dwarfs which orbit each other which then orbit the, uh, the star WASP-12. So it covers both of the topics that we talked about today. Now I studied this planet's atmosphere back in 2012 um, and I hated it. I absolutely hated this planet. I hated the data set. It caused me nothing but trouble. We didn't know at this time that there was an M dwarf binary system blended into the spectrum that we were getting uh, of this planet as it transited its star. We, had, we then learned about that. We had to correct for these two stars we didn't have spectra of. It was an absolute hell. Uh, and you know, I just called it the poopy planet. Uh, it was brown in my head. All of the spectra, everything was just rubbish. Um, but as as I have grown as an exoplanet astronomer, I've learned to love this planet. Uh, and I really do think it's one of the most fascinating ones that we have uh, to study right now because it sits on so many boundaries. It's very low gravity. Um, it's very puffy. So this is giving it a really good scale height. So this is the extent of the atmosphere, essentially where we can get the starlight shining through it before it reaches our telescope. So that means it's really good for us to look at its atmosphere and try and work out what it's like. Now, this has been done with the Hubble Space Telescope and the Spitzer Space Telescope. Um, and in 2014, uh, Laura Kreiberg and her team 
did a really concentrated study on this planet's transmission spectrum and found that there was a very muted water feature on top of the slope that was observed through David Singh's program, which we published in 2013. So our observations were very low resolution, uh, very low precision observations. We only had single transits of this planet in each of the wavelengths we looked at it. And there was, there was a large slope so scattering all the way from the optical into the infrared that we saw with a huge amount of scatter and large error bars. So Laura Kreiberg's work actually took multiple observations of this planet in a single uh, wavelength band pass and they were able to get the spectrum to much, much higher precision. And right within the scatter of what we originally observed is the uh, evidence for water absorption in the atmosphere. Now, this just confirmed everything that we were thinking about this planet. It's so hot and it's so close to a star that it should only be in the gas phase. There should be no clouds in this atmosphere. But the observations we made didn't make sense if there were no clouds in this atmosphere. So the fact that we saw this muted water feature that fit in with this scattering slope actually told us a lot about the planet's atmosphere and the temperature profile. Now, what we've learned is that the day side, because it's tidally locked, might be incredibly hot, 2,500 Kelvin, like I said, but the night side must be very, very cold. And on this transition from the day side to the night side, the heat that is on the day side uh, from the star heating up the atmosphere is not being transported efficiently around this planet. So the limb, the annulus that we're looking through when we're doing transmission spectroscopy is cold enough that it's forming clouds. Now the temperature that it must be in this part of the atmosphere is around 2000 to 1800 Kelvin. That's considerably colder than the hottest point on the day side. And the reason why we, uh, can make this assumption that the temperature is dropping off at that point without direct measurements of the temperature, is that the first condensates to form clouds, as I've described in previous exocasts, are corundums, so these aluminium oxides. Now, these form from between 2000 uh, Kelvin and below. So we have to have temperatures that are cold enough to form clouds. You can't form any kind of condensate clouds below the temperature, uh, sorry, above the temperature of 2000 Kelvin. So at this temperature, we would expect these clouds that we're observing scattering the light uh, to be made of corundum. And that, as I have explained many times in the past, is the basis of rubies and sapphires here on Earth. So not only is this planet in a triple star system, which in itself is fascinating. It is one of the hottest exoplanets that has been discovered to date, but it also contains clouds in its atmosphere that have been observed. Uh, and we are, I'm really hoping we're gonna be able to get further evidence for these kinds of clouds in the future. James Webb's gonna be perfect for this kind of study. The star is the right brightness that we can do follow-up observations of it with the James Webb Space Telescope. So there's a lot more to come from this very uh, annoying, ridiculous hot Jupiter. We, we don't know much about hot Jupiters, but there's so much we can learn uh, and get information of. And I think was 12 is one of those. Um, another interesting thing about was 12 is it is masked in controversy uh, from studies many years ago, uh, which suggested that it would it has lots and lots of carbon in its atmosphere. Now these have since been um, mitigated and 
even the author of those studies uh, suggests that that's not true at all. But uh, the controversy around this planet in the past has led it to be called the Diamond Planet, which is absolute bullshit. But I think it's hilarious that we've we've transitioned WASP-12b from this uh, Diamond Planet, which is just horribly wrong uh, interpretation of the data to a, a ruby, uh, cloudy ruby world. So it's a, it's a very interesting one for our little family. I don't think it's a demotion either. Um, you know, a diamond diamonds are pretty pretty common out there. Pretty but you know, a, a ruby planet and any and I mean I think corundum as a word, as a as a as a Isn't concept a just sounds word. so cool. It sounds like it's something that you would imagine, you know, a mythical uh, race of dwarves to be making their weapons out of. So it's it's just a way cooler <laughs> rock forming mineral, I think. Go I am totally agreeing with that in every single way. Right, thank you very much for joining us this month for another excellent instalment of Exocast, if I don't say so myself. Next month, Hannah's going to talk about composition and chemistry of planetary atmospheres. Andrew's going to provide a rundown on any interesting and pertinent announcements from AbSicon 2017. And I'm going to report from the Exocast news desk. So thank you very much for listening. For more Exocast, you can check out all our previous shows on the website exocast.org and on iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook. Until next time. Thanks. Bye-bye. Exocast.